So I'm, uh, I've got the, the benefit of bringing to you this morning a bit of a talk about 1 Corinthians. And the reason I'm going there, it's funny, uh, Corinthians is one of those letters of Paul that involves a fair bit of rebuke. So I, I didn't pick it out on purpose. I don't have in mind any particular reason why KSBC needs a, a little shunt. The inspiration was really by jumping from the Old Testament wisdom books and looking at uh, whether they kind of played a part in the New Testament, whether there was some connection through to New Testament things. And there are many. Uh, many times when Jesus speaks, he's actually speaking uh, in terms of wisdom. And uh, John's Gospel opens by attributing to Jesus the functions of wisdom from earlier times. And Paul does so too in Colossians. But I was attracted to 1 Corinthians because it spoke about wisdom so much and in such an ironic way. Uh, wisdom is something to aspire to and to really pursue in the Old Testament wisdom books, particularly Proverbs. When you come to Corinthians, it's a much more ambiguous thing, whether it's a, uh, an ideal or even something to avoid. And so uh, our passage this morning, which is going to be verses 18 to 31, we're going to read those in a moment, uh, that's going to talk about two things that I want us to think about. The first is, uh, how should we behave when the gospel of Christ is going to look foolish to those in our society? And then second of all, if we were not picked on the basis of an aptitude test, if our membership in the Church of Christ doesn't come because we were the cream of the crop, what should our attitude towards ourselves be? And so the passage raises both of those in turn. First of all, it's about the gospel of Christ. Second of all, it's about our attitude to ourselves within the church. So uh, let's read the passage together. I'll just bring that up for myself. Uh, we've got the Net Bible here, which I, I like to use because it's online and free. Uh, and it's good. It's, it's a well-thought-through version. And so I'm going to explain some context in a second. But this is how it reads from chapter 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written... I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise and I'll thwart the cleverness of the intelligent. Where is the wise man? Where is the expert in the Mosaic law? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made the wisdom of the world foolish? For since in the wisdom of God, the world by its wisdom did not know God, God was pleased to save those who believed by the foolishness of preaching. For Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks ask for wisdom. But we preach about a crucified Christ, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Think about the circumstances of your call, brothers and sisters. Not many were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were born to a privileged position. But God chose what the world thinks foolish to shame the wise. And God chose what the world thinks weak to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, what's regarded as nothing, to set aside what is regarded as something so that no one can boast in his presence. He is the reason you have a relationship with Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So let me mention one or two things about the Corinthians and, and about Paul's attitude to them. Uh, the Corinthian church was in a rather important city, 
of the day, a bit of a com commercial centre and a uh, place also where uh, there was a tradition of uh, wisdom, in other words, philosophy and education in right speech. And so the society of the day in which that church was born really prized good thinking and, and the ability to figure things out mentally and then the ability to speak well and to speak fluently. So you could talk about logic and rhetoric. They kind of prized both of those qualities. Now, Paul would have made it very clear in his early preaching that entry into the Church of Christ was not a merit-based system. Uh, and so I think uh, this makes me think of two kinds of races. So some of you have been watching the Commonwealth Games and others of you have watched alternative kinds of entertainment. Uh, I like watching races because I, I like the kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, the, the grit that you see people show and the courage and the, the comebacks and the strange things that happen. So if you watched any of the races this week, you might have noticed some uh, really surprising comebacks or where the one runner kind of jostled the other runner with his left hand to try and stop him from going past. You know, there's always a few surprises. So when I became aware of another kind of race that they run in the stall gift, I've, I've always found that a little bit confusing, that all of the kind of advantages that you might gain through becoming the very best in your field, they're all kind of removed with the handicap system so that you should start from all different spots uh, with the ideal of all arriving at the finishing line simultaneously. So it's as if all your natural merit is removed. So maybe when we think about how it is you get into the kingdom of God, how it is that you become part of the spiritual church, it's probably more like the stall gift than a natural Commonwealth Games race. You don't start from a, a straight line and then those who are uh, naturally gifted or have a lot of assets to bring to the kingdom, uh, they're the ones who cross the line first and God kind of takes the first couple for the finals and everyone else goes back, you know, to cry into their soft drink. Uh, it's actually more like the stall gift, isn't it? Whatever natural assets that you brought, uh, when you come to the cross, it doesn't really matter. There is no natural advantage. So that was no different for the Corinthians than for anybody else. Uh, they had a few high flyers. If you study Acts and Corinthians, you can chase a couple of names around and you find that there are some uh, leading lights in the Corinthian church as well. Uh, the ones that come to mind for me are Crispus, Gaius and Erastus. Uh, it helps that they rhyme. We actually, from the last run, Erastus, he was a, a chief of public works and there has actually survived a stone from um, a, a, pave, a pavement with his name on it saying that he funded that pavement. So... Uh, one of those really very direct contacts between the biblical story and external history. So he was an important guy, Erastus. Uh, Gaius seems to have been wealthy and to have hosted Paul when he went to Corinth and provided the means for him to do his ministry. Uh, who's that leave? Crispus. Crispus was the head of the synagogue at the time. So again, uh, in religious terms, a leading light, a very important guy, and would have sacrificed a lot to convert to Christianity. In fact, Crispus and Gaius, especially Crispus, uh, gets into trouble almost immediately because they go off with Paul on his ministry and Crispus suffers a beating at the hands of a mob in Ephesus in the next chapter of Acts. So they already began to understand what it was to give up your position and to lose your good reputation and fall into disrepute for the name of Jesus. But really, Crispus, Gaius and Erastus were not typical of the Corinthian church. Actually, most of the Corinthian church were pretty ordinary people. So later on, Paul will be able to say, look around you, not many wise, not many noble, not, not many 
rich, powerful people. You know, you're a pretty motley crew. Paul could say that to the Corinthian church. So leading lights were not the norm. Uh, And yet they seem to have started to develop a bit of a culture that was becoming proud again. So maybe some people who entered the church as pretty ordinary, no-name people, even through the confidence that they gained in Christ, uh, were becoming better informed and were learning and they were starting to become proud of their wisdom and they were looking at key people in the church and um, starting to form kind of little um, fan groups around them. So if you've read the earlier part of 1 Corinthians, you'll see that Paul says, I've heard the reports from your church that some of you say, I'm a follower of Apollos. I'm a follower of Peter or Cephas. Uh, some of them said, I'm a follower of Paul. You know, he's, he's, he's the guy we ought to be following. And then some people with kind of a little bit of smugness were saying, well, I'm a follower of Christ. You know, I'm, I'm not into all that stuff. And Paul just says, this is a real apples and oranges comparison. And, and what is it about you? If you came to Christ uh, without merit mattering, without assets, as it were, how is it that now you're starting to be proud of what you can provide to the kingdom or what your main person can provide? So this passage was going to try and bring them down a peg. Uh, within a whole set of chapters, chapters 1 to 4 are all about this. Uh, if you brought nothing to the kingdom, why do you now boast as if you did, as if your contribution Uh, God can't do without it. So let's talk through the passage a little bit from verse 18. So again, the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So it looks utterly different depending on your standpoint. The quote in verse 19, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise and thwart the cleverness of the intelligent. That comes from Isaiah 29, I think, from memory. And it's really where... Uh, in prophecy, Isaiah is saying, uh, you know, this society too has its pride and thinks it understands God's way. So he's going to do something really unexpected. He's going to break through in a way that nobody could see coming so that all you human beings start to realise you're not as smart as you thought. And so Paul says, from the point of view of the church, where is the wise man? Where's the expert in the Mosaic law? Where's the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the wisdom of the world foolish? Perhaps even here it's a, it's a way of looking around inside the church and saying all the people who uh, really thought that they were smart, thought that they were powerful, it's, they've been too good to be amongst us. They haven't been able to stoop at the cross. And so we don't see them here. Uh, the experts and the wise, the kind of people you hear in the media, um, they, they're too, too smart in their own minds to be able to see the wisdom in God's message. Hasn't God made the wisdom of the world foolish? So the world was too smart for God, and so God made the message too foolish for the world. It was God's ironic revenge that he would pick a message as the means of salvation that looked silly. So why does it look silly? Verse 22 talks about why does it look silly in Jesus' day, in in Paul's day. Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks ask for wisdom. So we might say that, Uh, Jews, and you can see this in the Old Testament, they expect someone who's a a prophet of God to be able to perform a miracle of some sort or to do something that shows their authority. With Greeks, they want it all to make sense. They want it to be philosophically tight, uh, to to be proof from any kind of uh, disproof or um, uh, logical argument. But what do we preach? We preach about a crucified Christ. 
a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. So why is Christ on the cross a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles? Well, Jews expected in Messiah a figure of victory, a conqueror, someone who would really reflect the power of God. And they carried in their mind this understanding that many people carry, that if you're a righteous person, God rewards you with prosperity and success. And if you've offended God, that he will pay you back with punishment and disgrace and and setbacks and disaster. Uh, If you picked and chose certain verses from the Old Testament, you could kind of support that. And clearly Jesus deals with that thinking in his own disciples. So it was common thinking. If you're on God's side, it'll show because you'll be doing well. God will bless your life and, and you will reflect all the benefits of doing the right thing, of following the right path. If you're offending God, if you're going against him, it'll be clear in your downward plunge. Like Haman in the book of Esther. You know, you resist God, that's how your life's going to look. So they had really concluded that you could read off from someone's life what their attitude towards God was. You could, you could read back from their life circumstances their righteousness or their lack of righteousness. So when Jews saw Christ on the cross in particular, and knowing that verse that says, uh, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree, right? Paul mentions that in Galatians. That was the final piece of proof they needed to know that Christ Jesus was under God's curse for his blasphemy. To see Christ on the cross, didn't matter that the Romans did it, that was proof to them, that was their final piece of evidence that this guy has offended God in the extreme. And so God didn't just give him poverty or sickness, uh, he has given him the ultimate humiliation in death. That's what they would have been thinking. Paul has to address this and the other apostles in their sermons that you see early in Acts and beyond because people who've been watching Jesus think that his crucifixion means the ultimate rejection from God. They don't see it as a saving death. They see it as the ultimate punishment. So for Jews, a saviour on a cross didn't make any sense, particularly if you were supposed to be talking about the Messiah. It was the very opposite of what was expected. For Greeks... Their ideal of nearness to God was to escape the world and to, be, uh, to re-enter a spiritual sphere. So God was spirit, and the further you got from God, the more physical things became. So the physical world, I have to simplify here because there was a whole range of views here, but the physical world uh, could really be viewed by some in the physical body as a bit of a prison. Even some church fathers talked about this. Uh, Physicality was degrading, was uh, punishment, it was imprisonment, it was probation. And the most spiritual thing you could hope for was to escape the body, escape the physical world, and be back in a spiritual state and really ultimately be merged into God the One. I know it sounds like Eastern religion or something like that, but people thought like this. The Greek world was not so very different from uh, Asian philosophy as we see it today. So for Greeks... First of all, that God would make himself body, would enclose himself in a body, didn't make any sense. It was degrading. It was tainted. It involved all the things that bodies do. And they couldn't imagine that God would do that to himself. Part of God's assets was that he was non-physical. He wasn't tainted or touched by this world. And that was far better to be in that state. 
Now, even more so, imagine if you think that spiritual is good and physical is bad, imagine resurrection back into a physical body. See, it doesn't make any sense to a Greek. If God had to suffer kind of a probation of being in a physical body, then at least when he rose, he would rise as a spirit and escape the body. But no, the gospel Paul preached was redemption in a physical body. They couldn't make sense of it. So Paul has given up on the idea, maybe he never held it, of trying to make the Christian message palatable to his society, trying to knead it into shape until they could accept it. The average person outside the church could accept it and find it sensible. He said, basically, he was saying that is a futile goal. You will not make the message of Jesus sound sensible to most people. It's going to be folly. This is God's special way of working. It's going to be countercultural. It's going to be unexpected. It's going to be difficult to swallow, a stumbling, stumbling block. But he says, you and me, we don't see it like that. We preach about a crucified Christ, a stumbling block and foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, equally, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then Paul says, don't underestimate God. The foolishness of God is wiser than the very best of human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So remember, one of, one of the things that Jesus said about his audience was, you don't like me because you're like the kids in the marketplace. You play a tune and I don't dance to the tune that you like. I never will. And so... You're put out that, you won't play the, that I won't play the game, that, that I won't do things the way you've expected them to be done. Uh, Jesus was always like that, wasn't he? Touching lepers and dining with sinners and forgiving people who seemed like they should really be doing probation themselves and not be forgiven. So I guess the, the first thing that I see in this passage is that we're going to have to face reality that the gospel message about Christ is not going to make sense to most people. And if you're like me... In your conversations with other people, that's been generally true, right? Uh, we're not in such a big church in Australia now that we can stay safely in the centre of the bubble and never rub shoulders with people who aren't Christians. And it's unhealthy if we do. So the, when the bubble is small, most people are on the surface rubbing shoulders with people at work and at school and at the shops and at the mechanic and the doctor, rubbing shoulders with ordinary people. And when we talk to them about Jesus... It doesn't make much sense to them, by and large. But Paul says, don't think it's everybody. Don't imagine that it's everybody. You are going to have to wear the, the burden of being unpopular and uncool. I remember when I was a, a young bloke, we had a, a youth leader person come to the place where I was and said, look, we've got to accept that we're kind of nerds in, in the world's eyes. We, we, there's no point trying to be cool and a Christian. In, in the ordinary society's eyes, to be a Christian is fundamentally uncool. So just be what you are. <laughs> Don't try to make everybody happy. But that doesn't mean becoming Amish or something. Okay, so uh, if we retreat into a little bubble and freeze our culture, thinking, well, where we are is as good as it's ever going to get. Our own society's going down, down the drain. So if we just stay where we are and sing hymns from the 1700s and, and just do exactly what we've always done, that's the best thing we can do for God. I think that's a false assumption because it assumes that you're already in the perfect place of God's will and that your uh, culture as a group of Christians can't be improved. So I don't like the idea of assuming that you're in the best place and trying to stand stock still. But to, to be 
a little microcosm of Christian culture from 300 years ago doesn't glorify God either. That's looking strange for the wrong reason. We ought to be prepared to look strange because we preach the cross of Christ. We ought not to look strange because we wear little hats from Holland or something, 1600s outfits. Okay, So let's not be sort of culturally frozen, but let's admit that we cannot make the gospel of Christ popular. It won't be the latest thing across the wire. The second half of the passage has more to say about our personal attitude to ourselves, how we see ourselves. And so maybe you can kind of at least mentally look around at the group. Uh, Paul's saying this to the Corinthians, but maybe you can imagine this set of a modern church. Think about the circumstances of your call, brothers and sisters. Not many were wise by human standards, not many powerful, not many born to a privileged position. We're not that class conscious, I don't think, in Australia, or we think we aren't. Um, In these days, they were very class conscious, and so if you were kind of to the manner born... In this society, that mattered for a great deal. You were treated differently from birth and on. Uh, We like to imagine that you could be born in any kind of starting point and through hard work, you know, uh, get yourself up to a good place. But when you think about who can pay for private schooling and who can't and all those sorts of things, it's not entirely true. But Paul says that doesn't matter. (laughs) Whether you're born in a good good family or a rich family or not. And in fact, he says "Most, most of you that wasn't true. Most of you weren't leading lights. Most of you aren't world champions. Most of you aren't the smartest in your society or the strongest, the most powerful, the most gifted. It wasn't your assets that got you into the church. It wasn't an aptitude test. You didn't have to clear a bar. It wasn't because you were the cream of the crop. God didn't send agents out through Australian society and headhunt you for the church. God's got disturbingly low standards for the people that he allows into the church. Very ordinary people. Very, you know, you think you've got issues. This is, this is a place where people with issues come. This is not the elite. This is not the, the Qantas, you know, frequent flyers lounge or Mensa or, you know, some club for um, that, the, the leading lights. That's not what the church is. Church is more like a hospital than anything else. Or it's like the MCG in the last hour of play when they decide, oh, we've got nothing to lose, we'll just open the gates and anyone can come in. No one's checking tickets. Uh, you can't walk into the member stand like that, but you could, you could be a millionaire or you could be a pauper and you can just walk straight in the gate. That's more like what the church is. You have to rock up. It's no good sitting at home and going, I wish I was down at the MCG. But if you rock up, in other words, if you come to Christ by faith, uh, your assets count for nothing because the gate is just open through what Christ achieved on the cross. So Paul says, you're starting to get tickets on yourself, but look around. Not many powerful, not many wealthy, not many standout people. God chose what the world thinks foolish to shame the wise. God, and God chose what the world thinks weak to shame the strong. <laughs> so if you think you're an example of uh, how well God does things, well, yes, you are. It's how God chooses little things to bring down big things and chooses weak things to prove strong things weak. So you and I are trophies of how God uses pretty much nothing to get his work done. So that can be hard to swallow, can't it? If if we sort of think, you know, I'm a real asset to the kingdom of God, I've got this gift and that gift, I've worked very hard, I've trained for a long time or whatever it is, 
it's a little bit hard to swallow, that actually uh, the, the, the credentials that I brought to the kingdom of God count for nothing. He's proving a point with me that he can use a weak person, a nondescript person. He's proving a point. That point only works if I'm not much. That's how God's operating. He's proving the strength of the world weak by using weak people and making them strong. Paul himself, after this, is going to say, when I came to you in Corinth, I knew that you prized intellect and I knew that you prized philosophy and good speaking gifts, and so I deliberately chose to leave all that behind. I came to you not with fancy speech, not with wise ideas, and we should remember Paul knows all this stuff. He's very educated. He's had training in rhetoric. He's gone to all the speech classes. He can play the game if he chooses to. He knows how it's all done. And in fact, in reality, in a sense, he can hardly get it out. That This is very well written. <laughs> Corinthians is very well written because Paul is an educated guy. But he said, when I came to you, I chose not to play the game. I knew that you might be looking for techniques of speech, all the, the latest ways of doing things, and I chose not to. And not only that, when I came to you, I was in a bad place. I came to you in weakness and fear and much trembling. So not only did I try and leave all the techniques behind, but I was a bit of a mess inside. And so I deliberately came a bit in the same method of God. I came deliberately not performing, but just speaking the plainness of the gospel. So Paul, Paul knows about this from personal experience. 28, God chose what is low and despised in the world, and what's regarded as nothing, to set aside what is regarded as something, so that no one can boast in his presence. He's the, re- the reason you have a relationship with Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I hear Colin Buchanan when I say those words, so if you know that tune, <laughs> you know, it gets into your head. Paul's actually quoting Jeremiah chapter 9 there. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. What comes before that is really a great verse in Jeremiah. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the the strong man boast of his strength. Let not the rich man boast of his wealth. But let those who boast, boast in just this one thing, that they understand and know me, that I am the Lord. So it's a very appropriate passage, and it's really in Paul's mind throughout this whole text we've read. Okay, let not the wise boast in his wisdom. Let not the powerful boast in his strength. could be physical or it could be social influence. Let not the rich boast in his wealth. Let them boast that they understand and know me. So later on, Paul says uh, in... in, uh, Well, look, I'm going to take you there. Chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 7. Who concedes you any superiority... What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you are satisfied. Already you are rich. You've become kings without us. I wish you had become kings so we could reign with you. So anything that you have now, it's a gift. So God has a habit of taking broken lives and putting them back together. He has a habit of making beautiful things out of dust. And so many of us are in a much better place than we would be had Christ not found us. I think it's true for me. Yeah, it's hard. You don't live both alternative lives, do you? So it's hard to tell. But uh, I think I can see what I might be if Christ hadn't found me. So maybe that's true for you too. Maybe personally you're a much better person than if Christ had never come and redeemed you. Um, not just eternally, but right now. 
But Paul says that's a gift. You can't take credit for it. So if God puts you together so well that you become a leading light and, and uh, a big person in society and you're, you're someone everyone can look to for advice and you, you know, uh, you're having a wonderful influence, don't start thinking that that's your own <laughs> inherent greatness. I went to a conference uh, in Boston at the end of last year and I found myself in conversation with a, a Kenyan pastor over lunch and forgot to go to all the sessions after lunch because the conversation got good. Uh, oddly enough, this guy, though clearly a Kenyan, was the pastor of a megachurch in Vancouver, Canada. Um, he had a friend who'd also grown up in Kenya and he'd gone back and visited him there and he said, you know, you may not realise that he asked me what senior pastors earned in our circles in Australia. So I didn't really know, actually, but I had a shot. And he said, in Kenya, they earn much, much more than that, and they get their houses for free, and they get a free car, etc." <laughs> so it's possible to do very, very well in Christian ministry, even in a place like Kenya. He had a friend who uh, had achieved such a position and was just kind of lapping it up and really thriving and enjoying this, this prosperity. That's one manifestation of the thing that's being warned against here. If God gives you a great gift, don't start feeling entitled to it. Remember what he made you. Remember what he found you as. Remember how small you are. That God enjoys taking nothings and making them something to prove that the somethings are nothing. So fundamentally, we haven't changed. God puts lives back together and makes them whole. Uh, But we didn't do that. That was a gift, and we can't take credit for it. So on the one hand, we ought to be super humble. Uh, the, the pride that's false in us, the, 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 what might tend to arrogance and conceit and, and feeling entitled, that all has to be crushed. That all has to go. And so you might think, well, okay, I, I get it. We're supposed to be like kind of the Puritans or whatever and just hate ourselves. Like the right way for the person of God to be is self-loathing, self-hatred. But actually, I think of it like this. Paul, at the end of chapter 3, while he's talking on this same topic, says, um, you know, stop talking as if you brought everything yourself, but in Christ, you really have everything. You own everything. It's all yours. So we're like the kids in the royal family running around the palace. All right? The, the, the king and queen's highest advisors don't get to run around the palace playing hide and seek. They've got to show due deference. Who gets to do it? It's just the kids in the family. They can, they can run from room to room like they own the place. And, and they're not there because of uh, having met a certain standard or having achieved behavioural objectives. They're there because they're in the family. So in Christ, we are ironically nothing and have everything. We have every privilege. Paul basically says when you're in Christ, no one can tell you what to do. No one can criticise you. You're a servant of God. Uh, God alone has the right to judge your performance. All those other critics, they have nothing to say. So in Christ, there's a, a, a position of great humility and tremendous privilege simultaneously. You've got to hold those things together. That can really set us free, I think. It can set us free from trying to perform, from trying to please other people or trying to be good enough for God. It's an awfully frustrating place to be to try and be good enough for God. And pride is a heavy burden to wear too. You can never let down. You can never fail. When, when you've got a, an image of success to project, you've got to watch every moment, every footfall to make sure you don't slip. 
Being free of that pride means we can admit all the silly things that we do. Some of us have a special gift of doing lots of silly things nearly every day, and so God has a way of keeping us really mindful of these things. Okay? There are long lists for some of us of the silly things that we do. We just hope not everyone sees all of them. But that's a blessing. Paul says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. It's not when I start thinking I'm a great speaker or when I think I'm God's gift to the church, even that I'm the most important apostle. It's when I'm weak that I'm strong. It's when I'm weak and I realise it's all about Christ. That's when I'm strong. So again, this passage wasn't not actually tailor-chosen, tailor-made for KSBC. It's just where my study was leading me. But I think there's a really important principle here there. Uh, First of all, understanding that the gospel is not ever going to win a popularity contest. It's God's unexpected way of salvaging people for himself. And that we didn't come in because God chose the cream of the crop, that he kind of headhunted the whole human population and got the best of the best and here we are. That's not what it's like. It's more like a hospital. It's more like general entry. Uh, Thank God for his grace that he accepts even people like me and even people like you. And in that privilege, we can really thrive in him. Let me pray. Lord, it's ironic that we can be the most free when we're uh, the most humiliated, the most humbled, the most brought down. Uh, Not so that we hate ourselves, but just so that we realise that it was all by grace. It was all by grace and it's still all by grace that we find acceptance in you. So may every one of us thrive like kids running around the palace, included in the family through what the cross achieved. Uh, Help us to really thrive in you, to get individually and as a church. Amen.